Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Broken Banquet, a podcast about missions. We are your hosts, Will Bailey and Dr. Ashley Goad, and we are so glad that you have joined us for another conversation about the church and missions, about what healthy mission relationships can look like, and as we hear from others who have dedicated their lives in one way or another to mission work. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Ashley. Hey, Will. How are you? Oh, doing just fine. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Thank you. I feel like I feel like I've been missing you. I hope we get together in person soon. That would be great. I would love it. Me too. I was just yeah. with um, Olga and Eager. Did I tell you anything about that story? Uh, well, I knew you were going to to see them, and but you have not told me much of how it went. We went to Turkey, and it was it was a you know, wonderful trip. We had a Mediterranean sea view, which actually ended up perfect because I had to preach about Jonah when I got back. So I figured it was sermon research that I would go for these swims in the Mediterranean sea to see if maybe I could get eaten by a fish. Absolutely. Yeah. No fish ever got me. And people keep saying, because maybe I've been obedient. I don't know. I don't know. Well, maybe. Whenever whenever I'm in a country, though, I try to really experience something cultural. And one of the things that I kept hearing about in that neighborhood, we were in this small little fishing village, was that Turkish baths were really popular. All right. So, so Olga had a birthday while we were there. And um, for those of you listening, Olga is my Russian global mission partner. So we've known each other for a long time. So it was Olga's birthday and Nadia, uh, which was the pastor's wife, was there too. And the three of us decided to have a girls' night and we kept hearing about these Turkish baths. So we went to a Turkish bath because it would not? be something cultural. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But Will, as you know, I sometimes get myself into these cultural experiences. <laughs> are we are we going to get back into the issue of whether or not you've been obedient? <laughs> quite possibly, quite possibly. Well, we went to this Turkish bath, and you know I've had massages before. I've done the whole spa thing before, mm-hmm. uh, but usually it's by myself. Like I don't mm-hmm. ever go with friends. Like, that's just not something I do. But this time I was with friends. And so the first things first is they made us all get naked in front of each other. Now, I don't okay. know if that's a- appropriate for our, you know, podcast listeners, but <laughs> but here we are. So so they yelled at us, you know, because none of us spoke Turkish and none of them spoke English or Russian. So, so they were yelling at us and we finally understood that it was, you know, to take off your clothes and wrap up in this robe. And then they made us go into a sauna, which was like a million degrees and there was no water. But then they brought all three of us into this other room with the Turkish bathroom. And so they laid us on the, this, this marble slab and not like the marble slab at the, you know, ice cream place, but it was Uh a marble slab that was heated. And they kept throwing this like buckets of cold water over us, I guess because it was so hot and we'd come out of the sauna. Uh-huh. And then it was time for the exfoliation. So they had all of that. And then they get to this foam bath, which I'm pretty sure that they put Dawn dishwashing detergent in. Mm-hmm. It just made this huge amount of bubbles and just put all of these foamy bubbles all over us. Will, you're not going to believe what happened next. I'm kind of fearful of 
where we're headed, but go for it. You know how much I love Nutella. I, <laughs> oh my gosh. I love Nutella. But mm-hmm. Will, they put us in these Nutella full body masks. Oh my gosh. And I just want to say to you that Nutella really stings when it gets in your eyes and your nose. <sighs> And then they bathed us, and then we had cold water, and then we had these couples massages, which was really weird afterwards, and then we left that place. So this is a cultural experience that I don't think I'll ever forget about Turkey, but they bathed us in Nutella. Yeah, I'm all for experiencing different cultures. Um, I think maybe a, a little research might be warranted from time to time before you just say, sure, I'll, I'll do that. Maybe next time. Maybe but, next time. But I, I feel like that this leads well into the interview that we have for today. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The first thing that comes to my mind when someone mentions a Turkish bath is uh, my friend Brian, who's a missionary in El Salvador. Um, no, 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 no. <laughs> what I mean is that we're talking about cultural differences and okay. and Brian really did get into a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for reeling us back in. You know, there's a lot of things that we experience, actually, that I think even while we're in the midst of it, we think, ooh, hey, here's a here's a sermon illustration. But gosh, you know, some experiences you just think, well, can't ever talk about that from the pulpit. <laughs> but on a, on a podcast, all bets are off. Anything goes, right? That's um, right. So, yes, we are about to hear from my friend Brian. Brian Dubberly is a missionary serving with the Methodist Church in El Salvador. And uh, we've been friends for a long time. Brian's wife and I grew up together in the same town in North Carolina. The first time I went on a mission trip anywhere, um, it was Brian's father-in-law who brought me to Costa Rica as a 15-year-old on a youth mission trip. And um, we just, our, our paths have crossed over and over and over again over the years. And so uh, definitely wanted to make sure he was on the short list of people that we would talk to as a part of this podcast. Uh, his wife, Ellen, is also uh, in El Salvador with him. And uh, I think we're going to circle back around and uh, talk to her at some point as well. So there'll be another episode coming up either with her or or with the two of them together. But uh, yeah, I was glad that we got to talk to Brian. It was good to catch up with him. I haven't I hadn't talked to him for a while. And so uh, I think people are going to enjoy hearing about what his experience and, and his transition into being a part of the community where he is in, in El Salvador. That's awesome. I really enjoyed getting to know him and figuring out that we were both Appalachian State alumnus and alumni. I both, really enjoyed you're, you're both of those things. <laughs> I really enjoyed meeting him on the podcast and getting to know who he was and more about his ministry. And one thing that I think you were going to say, Will, is that around the five minute mark. Yeah, uh, I misspoke. Um, around <clears throat> around the five minute mark, uh, you'll hear me say something about him moving to Costa Rica. What I meant to say, obviously, was moving to El Salvador. So forgive me for that. But other than that, I think uh, I think it was a good interview, and I think people are going to enjoy hearing from him. So without further ado, Brian Dubberly.
Hey, Brian, welcome to the Broken Banquet. Hey, Brian, guess what? What's that, Ashley? Appalachian State beat Texas A&M last weekend. I know, that's awesome. Woohoo! Go Mountaineers. Go Mountaineers, yeah, for sure. That was our alma mater bringing down the house. I am so happy for both of you. You, you sound, sound happy, it. <laughs> well, I know for a fact that one of one of you was way more interested in that game than the other. Yeah, it wasn't televised here. Yeah, imagine. I was that. excited for the both of us. It was good. Yeah, there you go. I was imagining all of the sports bars in a watch upon El Salvador full of people cheering on the Mountaineers. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So, Brian, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, you know, not only are Ashley and I excited about the fact that we're going to get to talk to different missionaries from all over the world over the course of this podcast, but most of the people that we're going to be talking to are friends of ours, and that's just so much better. So, you and I have known each other for almost 20 years. You came to Costa Rica for the first time in 2004, we think. Um, with a, a volunteer team from the church that was my home church and would become your home church for a season while you were in Rocky Mount. You and Ellen um, were there for a while. And um, that was when our friendship started. And we've been sort of uh, crossing paths, especially um, in different ways with mission work ever since. You came and worked with us in Costa Rica for about six months, uh, a couple of years after that first trip down here, and were part of our staff for a while. And then the first time you went to El Salvador, which is where you are now, I went with you and with your father-in-law just to kind of see what was going on down there. Do you, will you tell us a little bit about like what, is, what was that first trip to El Salvador? What was the, the purpose of that trip? Yeah, um, my father-in-law came here maybe a year or two earlier with Duke Divinity School and working on field placement here and um he came back excited about the programs that were going on with the church here without a whole lot of outside help and encouraged you and i to go back with him and i think that was in 2007 came just for a few days and visited um with uh, the now bishop the president of the church then juan de dios pena and he took us around the different churches and we saw the different ministries that were going on and got to meet a little bit with the pastors and then after that i could just kind of stay plugged in through my father-in-law and doors opened and doors closed. And then 12 years later, here I am. Well, it sounds like you've lived a lot over, Brian, a lot, a lot of different places all over the U.S. And, and there in El Salvador. And it sounds like if I'm putting all the math together correctly, it sounds like you've been in El Salvador longer than you've been everywhere else combined. Did I do that math right? Maybe I didn't. Um, well, I grew up in a military family, so we moved, oh, right. we moved every three years um, or earlier. So the longest I ever lived anywhere growing up was when I went to college at, in Boone at Appalachian State. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then I moved to Rocky Mount and was there for about 10 years, followed my wife there, um, and then came here in 2010, in May of 2010. Um, and I've lived here in a watch pond longer than I've ever lived anywhere. Um, and we moved, the first house we lived in, uh, we lived there for eight years. It's the longest I've ever lived in one house. So yeah, this is this is home now. Well, and I asked that question because one of the themes that we've had in our conversations with uh, missionaries that are serving around the world is that where do you consider home? And many of you have been um, in the place that you're serving 
for so long that that now is home. Yeah, this is definitely, definitely home. My wife and I moved here. Uh, we have a daughter who's from here. Yeah, this is, this is definitely home. Do you remember the first time that you were in the U.S. maybe visiting family and that you were just could not wait to go home and home was El Salvador? Yeah, the first maybe a couple of years that I was here building the ministry, uh, building support, I would go back to the States a lot. I was on a tourist visa, so every 90 days I had to leave the country and it just worked out that that's, I was here for a few months and I go back for maybe a few weeks or a few months, depending on the time of the year and visit churches and build support. Uh, I remember the first time that Ellen had moved here and we were here together and we both went back after probably a year here without visiting the U.S. And it was very weird. It was very much like a visit to to someone's home um, and not going back to where we're from. Things had changed that we didn't know about. So it was very it was very foreign, if you will, when we came back to the U.S. And all the English around you really kind of overwhelms you. (laughs) Because here, when we would hear English, it was usually someone on a team or a group, uh, and it was directed to us. So when you go somewhere and you hear all this English not directed to you, it's almost overwhelming. So probably after a couple of years living here, after that, it was no longer home in the U.S. Brian, I know Ellen was on a church staff when you actually moved to Costa Rica and started Salvador Mission Projects. Um, how long was that? I can't remember. How long were you in El Salvador while she was still in the States? Um, I was back and forth for about three years. Uh, and funny story, when I told Ellen, we started talking about me coming here and doing this kind of work. Uh, her response was, and it's been a response several times since, uh, if God's calling you to do that, then that's what you need to do, but I'm not going. (laughs) (laughs) And how many um, years later was it that three years later she moved here and has been there ever since? Yeah, three years. Um, and she really hasn't gone back to the U.S. very much. La- the last time she went was right before the pandemic started. She was supposed to go for three weeks and ended up staying almost seven months because she got stuck in the U.S. Uh, all the borders and air- airports here were closed, so she wasn't able to get back. Well, <laughs> we've had the opportunity already to talk to some missionary couples, and uh, we would love to get Ellen on another episode uh, down the road and let you guys talk together about kind of what your experience has been. You know, I moved to Costa Rica and Yolanda was here because she's from here. Uh, We talked to a couple from New Zealand who really felt like they were being called together as a couple to New Zealand. And your story is even unique from from that because you were Mm -hmm. called to a place first and answered that call. She was supportive of it, but wasn't ready to make that move yet. And then down the road, she did. And now you guys have been there, you know, in ministry together ever since. That's just a, that's a great story that I think maybe people would be interested in, in hearing more about and, and letting Ellen share about the work that she's doing in El Salvador also. Well, I don't know as much about your ministry as Will does. So do you want to give an overview of what your ministry looks like in El Salvador? Sure. Um, I'm technically the Volunteers and Mission Coordinator for the Evangelical Methodist Church in El Salvador. If you don't know, in Latin America, all of the Methodist churches, with the exception of Honduras, um, are autonomous Methodist churches. So what that means is a lot of things. I help coordinate the teams. I do logistics. I do the communication before, after, during. So if you were to to bring a team from, from your home church, uh, you would get into contact with me. We'd get you on a calendar. Uh, we would talk about what what projects that we're working on. We, we kind of concentrate on about five projects, all of them equally important. 
we we do home buildings. We've kind of moved away from that just because uh, the church has been able to purchase properties to build churches. Uh, when I first came here, the majority of the churches were renting space. And now most of them have their own facilities, their own property where we're not having the liability of having to pay pay rent uh, to someone else. We, we build churches. We do work with children. We do um, Bible schools all throughout the year. We do we host medical teams. We do a food outreach program that's kind of like an onion of ministry. It services a lot of different areas. Um, and we actually go with groups into the community and visit people at their homes, offer them a bag of food. But it's really just a way to get in the door and talk with the families and understand you know, what their struggles might be, get to experience a little bit of the culture. On our end, we can see um, families that may need more follow-up with, with help as far as material things, food or that kind of thing, or uh, even pastoral visits. And then we invite them to church. So, mm-hmm. so that's what we focus on. Pre-pandemic, we were doing between 25 and 30 teams a year. This year, we're going to finish with about 12, which is a lot better than the last two years where there's been zero. So we're, you know, we're excited for 2023 to get people on the calendar. We've already got about 15 teams on the calendar. Yeah, that's what I do. Brian, can you talk a little bit about what, what kinds of things the, the local Salvadoran churches do kind of missionally there in their communities and then the role that church partnerships play yeah. in that? I think the biggest thing the churches as a whole, most of the churches, if not all of them do, is a lot of outreach to children. Um, El Salvador is tiny. It's about about the size of Massachusetts or half the size of North Carolina. We've got about 8 million people who live here. So we're the most densely populated country in Latin America or Central America. We have a lot of children. Uh, school here is half day. So you can have Bible school or outreach kids anytime. So yeah, a lot of the, of the churches here do have a really good, strong children's program that we're hoping eventually will feed into a developing youth program and into adult ministries um, is the idea of it. Most churches, they go out into the community and they go pick up the kids. We have kind of like the, the, the Pied Piper, if you will. They'll go to different houses and pick up all the kids and they walk them to the church and then they take them home at the end of the, the ministry there. All of the churches do a vacation Bible school here in the winter, usually in the middle of December. Almost all the groups that come and work with us do some kind of outreach with children. Some of the churches here do a little better job with adult ministries. We have several churches that do pretty regularly like a revival where they invite church, other churches that are in their community to come together and, and have services and usually food involved. Another thing that all the churches support is we have a Methodist school here in Awachapan, El Salvador, where, where we live at, and it's where the conference offices are. We serve kids, started out as a kindergarten uh, with 18 students. Um, I think this is the seventh year that it's been open. And we now offer all the way through high school. And uh, we have about 535 students this year. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So, yeah. And that's what my wife does. She works. Uh, she's got a lot of jobs. But the, the job that she focuses on um, from February to the end of October is uh, teaching English at the school. It's, nice. it's a big selling point our, on our school. We have the only native speaking English person teaching English in Awachapan. And we don't, it's not required until you get to high school. But all of the kids at the Methodist school started at four-year-old pre-K get English until they graduate. So hopefully the idea would be is if you started in the kindergarten ages, by the time you graduate, you should have a pretty decent grasp of, of English grammatically and being comfortable speaking. How big of a town is a watch upon? Um, <laughs> we have one grocery store and two traffic lights. But oh, so big. Yeah. <laughs> 
But we have about 65,000 people that live in the city. Uh, you can walk from one side to the other in about 20 minutes. And then the municipality, the surrounding areas, there's about 125,000 people. Um, we're we're the, the largest city in our department. So a lot of people come here from the outlying areas to do business, to sell their goods or whatnot. We're also about 15 minutes from the Guatemalan border. Uh, you can actually see Guatemala from my house. Um, and so we have a lot of people who come from Guatemala for services here to go to the hospital, to go to the doctors, the clinics, uh, to sell their fruits and vegetables. So it's a pretty big hub. I don't know what it would be during the day when everybody's here, but it, it would be a lot larger than than what state spends the night. And I know that you guys have uh, a clinic, a health clinic. We as do. Well, it's right? in transition to moving. Uh, so at the moment, it's not open. We're, we're going to move the clinic to uh, a building we own. So we're not paying rent for the clinic that we were at. It's been around probably 16 to 18 years. It's low cost and accessible. Right now, the, the, the visits are $5 for your doctor visit. And if we have the medicines uh, in our pharmacy, they're given to you for free. Um, if we're not, then we have to, you have to go out to the pharmacy and, and buy it yourself. Unfortunately, the last couple of years, because of the pandemic, our pharmacy has been kind of sad. We kind of depend on teens bringing us medicines to be able to uh, keep stuff on the shelf. And a lot of stuff that we see are not like, you know, nobody's coming to the clinic, you know, carrying their arm that needs to be reattached. Um, it's, it's mostly, <laughs> it's mostly chronic stuff like, like diabetes, uh, blood pressure, cholesterol with kids. It's, you know, runny noses and colds. And we do breathing therapies with people who have asthma and the, the medical system here is really weird. It's, it's free, but there's no you might spend all day at the doctor and they can tell you what's wrong with you, which you probably already know, but there's no medicine to give you. So most people don't use the public stuff. So it's, it's a big service here in the, in the community and a watch upon. And like I said, people from Guatemala come in. So when it's open and we have medicines, we do a whole lot of outreach um, on that on, with the clinic there. So Brian, speaking of relationships with the community partnerships, um, what would a partnership between a local church here in the U.S. and a church in El Salvador or a church in the U.S. and your personal family, what would that partnership look like? And I'll ask a follow-up question after after okay. you answer that. Um, I think our goal is that, and, and I tell people this, is kind of a, a saying that I can remember. Um, we're trying to build relationships that have open arms and not open hands. The idea that there's this mutuality and mission, that there's give and take on both sides. The church here is relatively new. It was formed in 1994, uh, incidentally, by Salvadorans and not by any kind of missionary that came and started the church. Uh, so it's pretty unique on that end. Ideally, would be churches would help financially because at the moment, that's, that's a pretty big uh, need here to be able to, to grow churches you need to have money to be able to open new facilities and pay pastors to go out and actually shepherd these, these new churches. Um, so there's, there's that end of things helping financially. We definitely need people coming. That helps a lot. We get a lot of people that ask, you know, are we, are we in the way when we come here and, and do work aside, aside the, the Salvadorans? Cause obviously they're a lot better at it than we are. You know, we have those conversations where, you being here doing some of the not so skilled work allows the skilled workers to do their job uh, and things happen a whole lot faster. Mm -hmm. But honestly, the building of stuff, the, the actual manual labor 
while it is important to come and do that kind of stuff, that that's where you feel called, getting to know the guys you're working with is way more important. Getting to know the the pastoral family at the church we're working at, way more important. To get to know uh, the children and get to know the people in that community is way more important. Because I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard this already and you're going to hear it again. The When the, the groups go back, they say in about six weeks they get back into their normal routine and we're kind of the back of the minds. We're not we're not as up on the forefront as much, but what they do take back to, to their home church is not that, you know, we, we made a hundred bags of concrete while we were there and laid 3000 blocks. Let me tell you about this lady I met, or let me tell you about, you know, we went and visited this house and um, they had let us make tortillas for lunch. And I mean, that's the kind of stuff that people take back with them and that um, drives them to want to continue to support here and continue to, to visit mm-hmm. on our end what we can do is make sure that we're held accountable with you know you came and helped build this church here's the completed project this mm-hmm. person that you talked to um, that i know you have a relationship with this is what's going on in their life or you know hey they had a baby or their kids are going to, to the methodist school now and to allow us a lot of people don't feel comfortable coming here and letting us serve them but it really is important that we're able to cook for the, the teams that come and we're able to provide clean up after them and that kind of stuff and, and offer what we have available to, to the groups that are coming. So there is that mutual give and take, and it's not just a handout kind of thing. It's not just us wanting stuff and wanting stuff and wanting stuff because that's not sustainable. It's not a sustainable model of, of mission. I would ask then, do you think that you've found that type of partnership? Um, have you found that with your partners yet? Any partnership? Yeah, we have a few churches, I think, that get it. You know, we also have a few churches that because we're so task oriented in the United States and goal oriented, when they come here, it's, you know, we got to build this project. We got to do this. We're going to build this house. You know, we got to finish it this week. You know, the the house is going to get finished. The, what we need to see is the relationship building. And it's on my end, it's really cool when you see someone finally, finally get it. It's like the light bulb goes off. It's like, aha, this is why we're really here. But yeah, we have some churches that, that get it. They have a holistic approach to how they do missions, you know, and these are churches that I make sure I go and visit when I'm in the U.S. and talk to them and send mm-hmm. updates about what's going on. And here we are on this project or, you know, this is what we've been doing. I won't say a majority of churches that we work with have that that level yet, mm-hmm. maybe a third. And what I find the big difference between the ones who understand and the ones who are, are coming to do a project is that they ask questions they ask the questions about how can we help? What is it that you have a need for right now in this ministry? And we're able to have candid, open discussions about, you know, hey, this is where we're at. This is what's going on with it. You know, this is the struggle we're having, or this is the the outcome of, of being able to help us. We've been able to do this, like the school. We had teams come and build the school, and now we're serving 535 kids uh, all throughout Awachapan with Christian-based, affordable education. It's, you know, it's such a difference when you're in a a relationship with someone who understands how important it is to communicate and to communicate honestly, and that there's humility in the communication. And so when those questions are asked, they're also willing to listen to the answers. And so I hope that one of the things that people maybe will learn from from this podcast is how important that kind of healthy relationship is and how important it is for them to 
trust the people that are in the position that you are in, where you're part of the community, you're part of the church, and you know, you're seeing it every single day, and that they will trust you enough to ask those questions, but also to listen to your answers and, and let their relationship with their brothers and sisters in El Salvador be guided by that and not by anything else, not by what they want to do, not by what they think you need, not by maybe what they've done in the past, but by the answers that they're getting from you on behalf of the community that you're there in the midst of. I would say too that the one thing that I picked up mm-hmm. on that you said, Brian, was that you said mutual, mutual respect, mutual communication, mutual service. And I think that that is a big part of of how we make the broken banquet whole again, is that it does have to be a mutual thing that we're not just going to do something for someone else. You are not there just to serve those, serve the people that it becomes, it becomes this holistic um, idea of, of how do we live in relationship with one another and continuously serve one another and be present with each other so that we can go through life together and bring this bring this wholeness back to who we are and and how we live uh, mutually in respect with one another. So I, I appreciated you the way you put that. Sure. Brian, you mentioned earlier that the 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 church in El Salvador is is really young and that it was started by Salvadorans. So it is, you know, the identity of the church is Salvadoran, which is fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about what what that's like for the church as it grows and reaches out into new communities? What are the challenges of being a new young denomination, a new young church? But what are some of the kind of the benefits that come um, along with that as well? Well, uh, good question. And I think it really depends on where the church is located. If, if you're in an urban area, there's a lot of little independent um, Protestant churches. And just like in the U.S., you get people who church hop. They, they, they're at one church. They're not happy. They go to another church. You, we experience some of that. Um, we get people when they find out that we do these programs with food and, and with medicines and that kind of stuff, that they'll start coming to the Methodist church because they think that they'll get it because they're there or house built for them. Um, those people don't stay long. I think when you get out into the country, out into the, the rural areas, there's usually not as many churches. Most people in the, in the, in the rural areas are, are more Catholic, but if there are Protestant churches there, they kind of got a hold on that congregation. So I think what we have problems with is setting up churches in places where there are already one or two small Protestant churches set up. However, they're usually very fundamental uh, and very legalistic. So where we've succeeded in it is not being that, not being the, um, you know, you got to wear a you know, white towel on your head and women have to wear skirts and they can't wear makeup and you can't listen to rock and roll music. And we're not that. We're a little more open to, to things being culturally acceptable, but not legalistic when it comes to the interpretation of the Bible. The other big problem that we have um, that we're alleviating slowly is just a lack of Methodist pastors. Uh, and I think a lot of places with, with a Methodist church probably runs in the same problem. So we've, we've had, uh, we've borrowed a couple of pastors in the past from the assemblies of God church with the idea that they study Wesleyan theology while, while they're pastoring. So that they're, 
not setting up another Assemblies of God church uh, with a cross and flame outside. We, we do have a, sem- a regional seminary, I'll just throw this in really quick, through Duke Divinity School that they come, we're coming, pre-pandemic, we're coming twice a year and they're going to start coming back this December. And they do, it's, it's similar to a licensed local pastor course in the U.S. Um, it's a three-year program. It's not watered down. They're, re- they're reading Bonhoeffer and all that very heady theological stuff. But they're coming from Nicaragua. They come from Honduras. They uh, people in El Salvador, people in Guatemala, uh, and they all come for a full week intensive and it's intensive. It's early in the morning until late at night that they're doing these studies and reading. And you know, especially in Guatemala, some of these pastors, Spanish is not their first language. You know, they're, they're they speak Mayan and they they might speak Spanish. They may not read it. They may not have gone to school. So we're working on. I think that's a problem in in all the churches in this this area is being able to have. Wesleyan doctrined pastors available to 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 start new churches. I understand that completely because you know I'm a Quaker pastor on loan to the Methodist Church. So, but they made me go through all those uh, Wesleyan courses mm-hmm. too. It was good. It was good. Well, Brian, what do you think that partners here in the U.S. What can we learn from our brothers and sisters in El Salvador? Oh wow. <laughs> From the church, I think the biggest thing that we could learn, and this is just my personal opinion, let me throw that out first, um, pastoral care here is so good. Um, you know, pa- pastors, if you haven't been to church in a couple of weeks, sometime during the week, not like every time the door opens, but if you usually come on Tuesday night service and you're not there and you're not there for a couple of weeks, they're going to go to your house and find out why. You know, they're going to find out, you know, is That's it because... Awesome. You've been in the field on Tuesday fertilizing the crops. Is it because you fell and twisted your ankle and you got to walk a long way to get there? Is it because you're sick? Uh, Are you angry at somebody? But they're going to go and find out. The other thing would be, for the most part, our pastors are very open to um, the lay leaders leading things. Preaching the services, especially the youth. The youth are very involved in the churches uh, and the pastors are good at at making sure that they're... um, active. Uh, most of the praise bands we have are youth led, but yeah, pastoral care is second to none uh, for the most part. I mean, there's always an exception here or there. I think the other thing would be is that, and I think this would be true all the way across Latin America because we're more relational mm-hmm. and not so, go- not so goal and, and um, task oriented here. I think the fellowship is probably a little different than what you would see in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone says, hey, how you doing? They expect you to hang around and listen to the answer. It's right. not just the, hey, how you doing? And keep running. You know, Brian, one of the things that, that I talk a lot to people about when they come to visit us in Costa Rica is how I feel like here the the line between public and private is is a lot more blurry than it is in the North American culture that we, that all three of us grew up in, you know, we can sort of be friends with somebody and, and we'll share things with one another, but we all sort of know when we're getting close to that point where you're just not going to ask more questions. Right. And I feel like here, and I, and I wonder if it's the same thing, if you've seen it in El Salvador, that those lines are not nearly as clearly drawn. And I mean, I've heard people share things during worship services here in front of a whole church that I've thought, my goodness, there is no way I would have just stood up and said that in front of everybody. But because it's this, it's, it's so familial, mm-hmm. like, well, who else yeah, are you def- going to share? Definitely with, that way. You know? um, so when you talk about the relational. It, it's interesting because the, the food program that we do here, the food distribution, um, you know, we pack a bag of, of like pantry items, stuff that people would have in their house normally anyways. 
and it's kind of a way to get the foot in the door so that we, you know, we go with a group. It's not an invasion. We'll go with a group of three or four um, folks from the U S uh, into someone's house and the openness the, that Salvadorans have sometimes is hard for p- people from the U S to really grasp. They're invited inside. They're given a chair. They're sit down. They want to know what's going on, why they're there, you know, where they're from. Um, and, and sometimes people from the U S are really uncomfortable with that, with visiting. You said they're given a chair. Maybe they're given the chair, they might, right? They I mean, may be given the chair. Yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, it's, it's hard for, for, the first time you go to ask those kind of questions and they really will just open up to you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so some people uh, with that program, it's awesome because you get to see how people live. You get to see how, what people struggle with. Uh, we really do kind of sit down and fellowship with, with the families. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's kind of weird culturally the, um, for, for that to happen. But yeah, people share things that, like you said, they're just kind of like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe you're talking about, you know, whatever it is that they're sharing it at church or to the groups when they visit homes. But what I've heard there too, the, of you two both talking is that church requires, not church, fellowship, being a disciple, being a community, community member, it requires intentionality that you have to be intentional about how you use your time. You're intentional about being present with another person and asking them questions and listening to their stories and crying with them through their difficulties and lavishing your love upon them. And this all requires intentionality. And instead of like going and doing, we're being and we're being intentional with our time and learning about who the person is rather than how I can use this as a tangible project. And I think that intentionality also implies value. I value this person Um, as different as they might be from me, as different as their life might be from mine. I value them. And that has to be there if we're going to sit at the table, if we're going to restore this banquet. We have to value the other people who are coming to the banquet. Because if we don't, we're the ones who aren't going to be at the banquet. And I would say that, you know, that is church. Ser- serving one another, sitting and hearing those stories uh, is church. So then I wonder, have you seen many examples of where you feel like your partners and their brothers and sisters in El Salvador have been sitting at the table together as equals? Like, have you seen an instance where that mutual respect, that mutual value comes into play of where they're being intentional with their time with each other. Yeah. The good thing is, is that we don't, we don't have a checklist of where you're supposed to go or not go. So if we have teams that maybe were in this community a couple of years ago, doing a different project, working with children or something like that, and they go back and meet this family that they've met before. It's, I mean, it's pretty cool. It's, you know, they know each other by name. They're excited. They're there. They give everybody gives hugs and it, it's kind of family reunion ish. You know, that when people come back and they're like, hey, I remember you from a good example was earlier this year, uh, we were we were doing a Bible school in a neighborhood and we went to church there on Sunday before we started on Monday. And one of the ladies walked up to one of the team members and says, I have a picture of you and my son on my wall at home. And so on Monday, her son was at Bible school, you know, giving this guy a big hug and say, hey, I remember you from three years ago you know, and remembered his name. And it was, it's pretty awesome that, you know, you're here a short time, but you made that much of an impression. I love everything about that. Well, we're coming to the close of our, 
our conversation here, Brian. It's gone by so quickly. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder though, I wonder, Brian, is there something that you wished we had asked you about your work or yourself or anything that you wanted to tell us that you did not get a chance to tell us? Yeah, I think uh, one of the questions you didn't ask is uh, what kind of struggles do I have working here? Sure. The, the big obvious one would be cultural. I've been out of the U.S. for so long that I, I don't completely relate to U.S. culture anymore, but I'm also not Salvadoran. Um, so we get kind of this third culture, which in sometimes it, it benefits me. It makes it easier for me to bridge the gap between the cultures of the groups that come here to work and the groups of church members or, or people, the people we're serving here in El Salvador. However, the other side of it is if I have an issue with something or I'm struggling with something, it's difficult to find someone to talk to that will un- understand, completely understand. I mean, they, I can tell them, hey, I'm struggling with this, and they understand the struggle, but they don't understand my point of reference or my point of view of where that struggle is coming from. So, and I, I, w- I would think that that's probably the same with anybody who is serving in a country that's not their own, or even if they are. I mean, you may, you may be from Alabama and you go to Seattle. I mean, there's such a difference in the culture there that you're probably going to run into that same problem. You know, it's, it, there are struggles we have here. I love working here in El Salvador. I love the people that I serve with. Um, I love the people who've become family here with me uh, and my family. And, but sometimes you just want to bang your head on the wall just because there is that difference culturally. You know, and I don't, there's not a fix to that. I know there's not other than sometimes you just got to say, God, get me through this and uh, come out the other side and, and get back to, to what it is you should be focusing on. Not so much on the why certain things happen the way they happened. So. I mean, I, I totally feel you. Um, <laughs> I can relate 100%. One of the really interesting things that's happened through our relationship with First Methodist Shreveport is how they've gotten us connected to other missionaries and other missionary families. And so, and, and Brian, you know, at times, even you and I have, have done this, you know, when it's just like we're losing our minds and, and we'll get a, you know, WhatsApp message saying, what? do you do when this is happening, you know? Um, because sometimes maybe the only person who can understand that third culture is another person who's maybe not in the exact same third culture, but is also in a third culture. Yeah, so absolutely. I can at least understand the struggle. So yeah, I, I hear you. Well, as we wrap up here, I wanted to bring up one thing that we haven't talked about yet on this podcast. And Will, you had mentioned to me you took the team from Costa Rica Mission Projects to El Salvador to work with Brian. And Brian, I think that you all reciprocated not too long after by taking a team from El Salvador to work in Costa Rica. I love that idea. Y'all want to talk about that trip or those two trips? I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, after Hurricane Katrina hit, we we started taking Costa Ricans on mission trips to the United States. And, and um Brian actually was part of that first trip because we want to make sure that the Costa Ricans can live out Acts 1-8, being witnesses in their Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, just like volunteers from the U.S. can. And so once Brian was sort of set up and had, had things going in El Salvador, we thought, well, you guys are so close. There's so many things that we have in common, but there's still so many things that are different. This will be, why don't we do this? And so we raised money here 
and they raised money there in El Salvador, and we were able to take a group to their community and work with them and worship with them and fellowship with them in El Salvador. And then, uh, was it like the next week, Brian, that you guys flew to Costa Rica? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was right after you guys left. So yeah, maybe a week later. And I see still like on Facebook um, and just in conversations, I know that the youth that we took to El Salvador still are in touch with the youth that they worked with and met and worshiped with while they were in El Salvador and with the ones who then came to Costa Rica. Yeah, it was um, a pretty awesome experience. I don't know about the group from Costa Rica, but the the folks from from here, uh, most of them have never been out of the country. Um, they, you know, Guatemala is 15 minutes away, and they haven't been to the border to step their foot over in Guatemala. You know, so it, it was just getting to Costa Rica was an experience. I think Juan de Dios was the only other person that had been on an airplane. The experience there, the hospitality that was shown to the Salvadorans when we got to Costa Rica, um, it was probably not anything that had been experienced here by the folks that went. So it was it was quite an experience to to be able to go to Costa Rica, like you said, cultural similarities as many as equal to the cultural differences, mm-hmm. you know. And we were able to help with the church project there. It was it was a very I mean a pretty awesome experience. One I would hopefully in the future would be able to to do again. Yeah, so. definitely. And we actually took I think two more teams. After that first, mm-hmm. I think we've taken three teams, yeah, I think but definitely a highlight for me. And, and when I think about the, the trajectory of, of this ministry and mm-hmm. our sort of missionary career, like being able to do that with you guys was a highlight. Mm-hmm. And definitely, absolutely, yeah. we need to talk about that. We, we, give me a call, Brian. Right. We need to talk about that. All right. Sounds good. Hey, there's one more thing that I want to, I want to touch on before we let you go, Brian. Okay. Um, you know, I really, I, I kind of want to leave my, leave a mark on this community. I hope that the work that we're doing will, will do that in a, a positive sense. Uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of, of like putting our name on things. Uh, we get asked sometimes when we're finishing a building, like, Hey, you know, Will, how do you spell your full name? And I won't tell people because I, I don't, they're not going to put a plaque on a church that, you know, thanks us. And, and I know that there's even roadways that have people's names on them. I don't think you have an entire roadway that is is named after you in Owachapan, but but isn't there a particular curve on a particular road that that is basically your curve? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness! Hey, thanks for bringing that up, Will. <laughs> and it's not my na- my name is not on the curve. Um, it is it is a little <laughs> more ambiguous than that, but it is called the Gringo Corner. Um, <laughs> We have a church that is really far down in this. You basically go to the edge of town and fall off over half a mile. I think it drops like 900 feet. So it's a really steep hill. Uh, My work truck here is an old Land Rover. Um, It is the most photographed truck in El Salvador. How old is it, Brian? It's a 1973. So it's older than I am, you know, and it's, you know, it looks like what you see in the African safari stuff. And I was actually, thankfully, nobody else was in the truck with me. Uh, we were going down. The project had just started this church. We were going down there to talk to a guy with a backhoe to level the property. And there's a really sharp S curve. And I put on the brake to shift down into first, and the brake went to the floor. So, so right there in that corner, I had you know a, a decision to make. Do I go into this really deep ravine, or do I turn just a little to the left and run into a house? So I chose the house and, um, 
Luck, wow. Luckily, this house was actually a carpenter shop, uh, and his workbench was right at where I hit the wall. Um, but he was late that day and was out back cooking his beans and, and eggs for breakfast. So, so yeah, a little later, maybe several months later, we were doing a um, some projects in that in that community other than building the church. And Juan de Dios was there. We were also doing food distribution, and the lady asked about coming to her house to visit. Um, and he said, you know, sure, we can do that. You know, tell me where you live at. And he's, she's like, oh, I live up there by the Gringo Corner. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, and the, the picture of my truck, and I actually didn't just hit the house. I hit a rock wall and then a, bob, oh, a barbed wire fence and then a tree and then the light post. And then I barely touched the house. So it, I think it took the whole of about five minutes before it was on social network here, the, the pictures of the truck. and um, uh, But the truck never shut off. It was still running. I had to turn it <laughs> off. And if I hadn't broken the suspension and been high centered, I probably could have driven off from it without brakes. So, um, so yeah, that's my legacy here in Awachapon. I'm the gringo that drove into a house in LaGloria. <laughs> and I would not have had you tell that story if, you know, if anyone had gotten hurt, but the no, 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 nobody, nobody was hurt. And, and honestly, the guy who at the house was really cool. We just, we just, I think it cost $27 to fix the damage to his house. <laughs> Uh, the truck was a little more expensive, but um, yeah, it was it was quite the spectacle. All the neighbors came out, and yeah. Hey, if you'll send me a picture, we'll include that on the the extra material that we're going to have on the website of, of your episode. absolutely. I'll send you a picture of of the truck in the <laughs> gently kissed the house, gently kissed oh the house. Oh my yeah. Ryan, thank you so much for yeah, for man. spending the morning with us. Uh, it's been fun. It's been, I appreciate you uh, inviting me. Yeah, no, it's been our pleasure. It's been a delight, Brian. I'm so happy to get to meet you over the podcast yeah. and can't wait to do it in person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, Brian. Hey, I'll talk to you soon, buddy. And we'll get in touch with you um, and, and figure out when we can do this again. But definitely want Ellen to be a part of it. So give our best yeah. to her and to Camilla. And right. uh, we we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Wow. I loved meeting Brian. Thanks for making that happen, Will. I feel like I have a kindred spirit in a, a another Appalachian State alumni. So great. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that, that you guys got to connect. And you know, that's one of the, I think one of the most exciting things that we both get to do in our fields is, is connecting people. And so, uh, yeah, I was glad that, that we were able to have him on. You know, one of the things that he he mentioned that really sort of got the wheels turning for me, we've talked about, obviously, the banquet, the, the name of this podcast is The Broken Banquet, and how we've, we've all been invited to that banquet, and, and one of those sort of metaphors that we've used is talking about what it means to come to the table, and and I can close my eyes and sort of visualize, I kind of have a habit of visualizing what that looks like, what I hope that looks like when we all come to that table. But hearing from Brian and hearing the way he describes the circumstances that a lot of the people he's in ministry with live in, it made me for a minute reimagine what that table looks like. What if that table is made out of a bunch of scrap wood 
held up by cinder blocks and rocks and whatever, um, kind of sitting, wobbling on a dirt floor in a house that's made out of scraps as well. What if that's the table that we're all being called to? What is that? What does that mean? What do I bring to that table? And I think that's the question that hopefully a lot of people are going to wrestle with when they're considering going out into the world in mission is when I sit at that table, how do I honor that table? How do I honor the other people at that table? What does it mean for me to be a guest at that table? There's just, there's so much there. And and I think maybe I just hadn't thought about, I hadn't visualized it that way. I'd always imagined a table that's just gigantic and big and comfortable for everybody. Cause that's what you want. You know, you want everybody to be comfortable at the table, but not everybody's tables are comfortable. So I need to give some thought to what it means for me to be invited to that table. Anyway, I love that. I love that too, Will. Thanks for sharing that part. That gives me cause to reason of what tables have I sat at uh, in Haiti, in Russia, in Costa Rica, in El Salvador, and what am I bringing and is myself a gift enough? And I hope it is. I think that's what we've really been getting to here in these episodes is that the gift of our presence, the gift of our being, the gift of our communion with each other is what we are really called to do. I I don't know this. Now, this may be a a stretch, but it kind of reminds me of, have you seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? You know, he's, he's looking for the Holy Grail. He's looking for the cup that Jesus drank from. And at the end, there's all of these cups to choose from. And the bad guy chooses this, you know, really shiny uh, gem encrusted uh, cup thinking that's the cup for the king, you know, the king of kings. This is the cup he would have drank out of. And, and, you know, his face falls off or something. And Indiana Jones picks out this very humble I can't remember if it was wooden or like clay or what, but you know, that's, that's the cup of a carpenter. Well, what if this is the table? What if the table of the king also a carpenter, but what if that's, that's the table? Definitely. I feel like we should have led with that. <laughs> Forget the Nutella story. <laughs> You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table. All things are ready. Come to the feast. Come to the feast.